Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be here with you this Sunday. Uh, on this such a beautiful Sunday morning, I'm glad to see all of your faces. Uh, we're going to continue with our sermon series and the book of Philippians. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it was probably about 18 years ago, uh, my wife, Karen and I, and our son were living in New York City. Or we're living in New York City now. No, we were living in Ukraine then. And, and actually in the capital of Ukraine called Kiev. And uh, we decided that uh, our son was four years old. We decided that we wanted to teach him how to swim. And living in that part of the world, we didn't have a lot of options with public swimming pools. There were a lot of rules and regulations around the use of swimming pools, including needing a doctor's uh, physical and, and just a whole bunch of things. And we decided that wasn't the best for us. And so we knew that summer we were going to be going on vacation to Cyprus. Now, that sounds fancy, but living in that part of the world, we could get these packages, these all-inclusive packages. And so for our family, for two weeks to go down to Cyprus, airfare, hotel, all the food was like $1,500. So we weren't, you know, we weren't rolling in money or anything like that, but it was just one of these nice things that we could do. And we decided when we get to Cyprus, we were going to teach our son how to swim. And we had two weeks to do that. And so we made a plan, Karen and I made a plan, that we would start in the mornings with swimming at the pool. In the afternoon, we'd go to the beach. And in the evenings, we would come back to the pool. Um, and the way we started that process was basically uh, modeling to Nathan how to swim. So we modeled to him, you know, how to do a doggy paddle and, you know, do this through the water with him. And he would watch. And, and then I would do the doggy paddle and he would watch. And then we decided, okay, that's good. Now we need to teach him to float on his back, all right? And that's, that's the, one of the first things. And again, these were just for his safety. We wanted him to, to feel secure uh, in the water. And so we'd have him lie on his back and he'd watch first Karen and I do it. Um, and we'd have him put his hand underneath her back and see, mommy and dad, we're, we're, we're fine. We're not sinking to the bottom of the pool. You're gonna be fine. And we continued to model this for him. And then we said, now it's your turn, Nathan. We're going to have you get on your back. And he was super nervous, right, as, a four -year as any four-year-old would be. He was so worried. He's like, oh, my goodness, the water's going to get in my eyes. It's going to get in my nose. 
Um, and finally, after a while, with us standing beside him, holding his back like this, he would finally relax, and he would relax and, and float. And we did that for a while, um, and then we'd, of course, move our hand away. And as soon as we did that, what would he do? He would start flailing about, try to sit up, and, of course, sink into the water. Water would go in his eyes and his nose, and he'd come up looking at us like, why are you trying to drown me? And, of course, I'm exaggerating some of that, all right? But, um, uh, but over the course of two weeks, through modeling and practicing, practicing swimming with Nathan, through him watching Karen and I, through helping him, he, at the end of that, yikes, at the end of that two weeks, he learned to swim. Amazingly slow, he learned, he, amazingly so he learned to swim. Um, and a lot of that had to do with just modeling that behavior for him, letting him see us do this. And so over the past two weeks, we've been engaged with Paul in his circumstances from his prison cell. And, he, you know, he'd spent these last 15 verses, this, this, this big section of his report, telling us how his chains had advanced the gospel and how Christ was at the center of his life. He had just told them the truth um, about how to live. And, and the thing with this, that section, that report that we read over these past two weeks, it wasn't just giving them instructions. Paul was modeling for them a, lie, a Christian life and responding to opposition outside the faith to unbelievers who were persecuting him, as well as responding to um, believers who were causing problems for him. Pa Paul not only told these Philippian believers how to deal with that, but he modeled that responses in his behavior, in the way he wrote, and in the way he dealt with these two very different situations. Paul wanted these saints in Philippi to, to embrace, to believe, and to live out the principles that he was living out in a very difficult, trying circumstance. So beginning here in verse 27, Paul turns from his personal matters to address the circumstances of the Philippian church. Now, from the rest of this letter, except for maybe two other places, Paul will focus in on the circumstances of the Philippians, and he will begin teaching them, instructing them, encouraging them uh, to live out the Christian life in a manner that is worthy of Christ. And the thing is, these Philippians, Paul is teaching these things, instructing them, and modeling out this behavior for them because they were living in the same, under the same circumstances he was living under. They were enduring trials. They were enduring hardships. They were facing persecution because of their faith. And Paul wants these believers to live worthy of the gospel, to be united against opponents of the gospel, and to be united against dissension from within their own ranks. So he begins in verse 27 with, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This whole section from here to chapter 2, verse 18, focuses on this issue of humility, on this issue of unity, unity through humility. Paul is going to drive this home over these next 12, to, you know, next 20, I guess it's 22 verses. Verse 27 is a command, and it's an exhortation. It's a command to us as believers, as followers of Christ, to do it actually to work out what Paul is telling us to do. The NIV translates verse 27 as, Conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's the first of many commands that Paul will give to this church, and by extension, that's a command, again, for us. We're to carry this command out as well. 
this expression, the manner of life, is one Greek word, and it's only used twice in the New Testament. It's a very rare, it's rarely used by Paul, and it's not the word that he usually uses when he's talking about uh, the Christian life. Normally, he says walk in a manner. So if you go to Colossians 1.10, he uses the, word, the Greek word for walk. But here, in this section of Philippians, he uses a totally different Greek word. Everywhere else, he uses this verb walk. And most commentators think Paul picked up this Greek word because of the situation and the circumstances of the Philippian church. And this, the, this Greek word carries the idea of civic duty and belonging to a particular city. And originally meant to live as a citizen of a free, of a free state. So in essence, Paul is saying, let your manner of life as citizens of Philippi, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, if you think about citizenship, citizenship comes with responsibilities and duties. And according to the Greek philosopher and Roman politicians and other, everywhere else within that time, uh, that time period, there were all kind, every citizen was expected to live out their civic duties in a way that lifted up the city, in a way that, in a way that brought uh, peace to the city. They were to use their gifts um, in a way that would honor and build up the city. And that's sort of behind this whole word of living out uh, or living in a, in a manner worthy of, of Christ, that we have this civic duties, these civic responsibilities as citizens of heaven. You know, these Philippians, Paul says that um, this reference here is that citizens have obligations. They have to be a law-abiding. They have obligations to live according to the regula regulations of the laws of that city, which means that they can't live any old way. They have to live according to the charters of the, of the city of Philippi. That was expected of them to be, to be good citizens. That was how they were to live. So Paul's command to live in a manner worthy of the gospel would have resonated with the heart of the city as well as the heart of the members of this church. Remember, the Philippians, uh, the, Philippians, the Philippians lived in a city that was very proud of the fact that they were a Roman colony, right? So most of the cities, maybe, maybe 60, 70% of the citizens in Philippi were Roman citizens. And that gave them all kinds of special rights and privileges uh, that others did not have. On top of that, that would have also meant that members in this church in Philippi were also citizens of Rome and had certain rights and responsibilities. And so Paul's using this verb really to capture their heart and get their attention that as citizens, not just of Philippi, but you're citizens of heaven, you're citizens of the kingdom of God. Now the church understood that their first loyalty rested with the kingdom of God in the gospel, not with Rome. Not that they weren't to bless that city, not that they weren't to help that city, but their primary responsibility, their primary obligation wasn't to Rome, it was to King Jesus. And as proud as some of them may have been as citizens of the greatest city in the world, they could all now marvel from the greatest to the least that they had become citizens of heaven ruled not by a maniacal emperor, but by Jesus himself, who reigns at the right hand of God Almighty. Our citizenship, Paul will say elsewhere, is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul urged these believers to govern their lives according to the gospel, which was the gospel in essence is their constitution, and it dictated how they were to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And to do so, though, to do so, to live according to the gospel would result in persecution. 
because these believers refused to compromise by worshiping Greek and Roman gods or even worshiping the emperor. So to be a good citizen in Philippi, to be a good citizen of Rome, would have meant that they would have had to practice their civic duty by worshiping the Roman gods, by worshiping the emperor. And of course, these believers were not willing to compromise their faith. And because of that, they faced persecution and suffering simply because they aligned their lives with King Jesus. They had not chosen to give in to compromise, but rather to stand against those who were opposed to the gospel. They had chosen to stand on Jesus Christ as a solid rock, even as a song we read today. And because of that, they faced all kinds of trials and persecutions, just like Paul was in his Roman cell. Paul goes on in verse 27, he uses this imagery that doesn't come out really well in the, in the English, but um, he uses imagery of soldiering and of, of athletic games to express what it means to live as a citizen of heaven, to live worthy of Christ. First, he calls on the Philippians to stand firm in one mind. And his desire here is that they would stand together united. He wanted them to stand together courageously, not shrinking back in fear, from their oppressors, from, from their persecutors. Now, I don't know if you recall this movie, uh, 300. Um, it was probably 15, 16 years ago it came out, and it was a depiction of the Battle of Thermopylae, um, which was, happened in around 480 BC, and it was a battle between the Spartans and the Persians. Now, of course, the movie, if you watch the movie, it took great license with some things, but the actual battle was a historical event that truly happened with Leonidas and others um, that are mentioned in, in this movie 300. But in the movie 300, Leonidas is the, uh, is the Spartan commander, and he's leading the entire Greek army against the Persians as they come into Greece to conquer Greece. Now, Persia at that time was this huge empire, um, and when they come into Greece, they are going to fight the, the Greeks with an army, most, most historian thinks, with an army of 150,000 to 300,000 soldiers. And they're going to go up against a Greek army, an advance guard of the Greek army of about 7,000. And this uh, Leonidas was to lead this group to slow down the Persians um, as they came into Greece to help their cities prepare for this oncoming onslaught of the Persian Empire. So the, the, again, the, the Greeks were greatly outnumbered, like 30 to 1. Uh, now, the Greeks decide that they're going to defend their homeland through this pass. As the, the Spartans come in, they have to pass through, through this very narrow pass to get into the heartland of Greece. And so that's the place that the, the Spartans and the Greeks set up for battle. And over about two or three days, this tro these troops of 7,000 troops defend against 150,000 plus and stop the Persian army in their tracks. They can't make progress. Tens of thousands of Persian soldiers die over these two days of battle. Well, then something happens that changes the whole outcourse of this. And that is, in the process of um, de defeating the Persians or slowing them down, they're betrayed. The, the Spartans, the Greeks are betrayed. And someone goes to the Persians and says, hey, there's another way around. You don't have to go through this pass. You can come around. So if you bring some of your forces around, they'll be able to attack Leonidas and the Greeks from, from behind. And so that's what, the, that's what the Persians do. Well, Leonidas becomes aware of this. And so he sends out most, most of his troops back to their cities to say, prepare. We're going we're gonna to have a last stand here to slow down the Persians, to help our cities get ready 
for the battle that's to come. So he keeps 300 Spartans and about 700 other Greeks, and they make this final stand. And it's an amazing picture in the movie of these Spartans dressed in full combat gear with these shields that are from the floor to the top of here. And they're standing foot to foot, shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, locked in battle, and nothing can move them. They don't step back. They don't surrender. Every last man will die. But they knew in these battles, they knew that if somebody flinched, somebody moved to the side, that it, their whole lines would fall apart. So these men stood shoulder to shoulder, foot to foot, and refused, refused to run in fear, refused to flee the scene of the battle. Now look, this idea here is Paul is calling us to the same thing. He's saying, look, we need to lock arms together. We're in a battle. We're in a battle with those who are against the gospel. And the only way to defeat that battle is to be united and stand, not to flee, not to run in fear, but to stand together united in Christ to, to face the enemies before us. That's how we have victory. That's what it means for us to live in a manner worthy of Christ. In the midst of persecution, we stand united together uh, to face the onslaught before us. Now, Paul often uses these words of um, athletic words throughout the scriptures, right? He, wh wherever you are, he's using various terms to describe the Christian life regarding um, the athletic games that were happening. So in verse 27, Paul continues this theme of, of, the, of the athletic games of an athlete, and he says by saying, Paul says, live a worthy, worthy of the gospel means one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, striving in Greek picks up on this imagery of athletics. Um, and the thing here is that Paul, he uses it throughout scripture. And for example, it doesn't come out well here, but it, it is the idea behind the Greek word. And I want to go to a place in scripture where Paul does use this uh, in 1 Corinthians 9. So here's what Paul says, again, using this imagery about the Christian life of what it means for us to uh, walk worthy, uh, worthily of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. The same imagery is this idea here of striving together. Paul is saying in one mind and one accord, we're to strive together as a team. We're on the same team against the enemies of the gospel. We're not opposed to one another. We're together. And the way we're going to succeed and the way that we're going to live in a worthy manner is by striving and standing together in the midst of our opposition. We must present a united front. That's the call. That's what Paul is saying in these first three verses of Philippians chapter 1. He's saying, stand united, strive together in the midst of op opposition. Don't fear, don't back up, stand together, and you will succeed because Christ is with you and you're united in Christ. You know, sometimes opposition will lead to suffering and persecution because of our commitment to the gospel and to live as heavenly citizens. But let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves. As citizens of the United States and residents of New York City, we do not face the kind of persecution, the kind of suffering these believers in Philippi faced. 
Now, please understand me. I'm not saying that we, that we are not mocked or looked down upon or marginalized from the public sphere on, in so, on some ways, in some ways or on some level, right? But we are not thrown into prison, nor are we beaten or whipped or killed because we claim Christ as our Lord. But these Philippian believers in Philippi, that was what was happening to them. That's what happened to Paul, if you remember from the beginning of this, when he first planted the church, he preached the gospel, was taken aside, whipped, beaten, and thrown into jail. The same thing continued with these believers in Philippi. But the thing is this, that we don't face this kind of persecution. We don't face this kind of suffering. But many of our brothers and sisters around the world do. And at the hands of oppressive government, at the hands of individuals, uh, many of our brothers and sisters around the world are persecuted because of their faith, are beaten or thrown into prison or killed simply because they claim Jesus as their king. And what I want to encourage us as a body of believers is not to forget those brothers and sisters. At least 50% of the, the Christian church suffers on a regular basis at the hands of those opposed to the gospel. We need to be a church who remembers that, who is in prayer for that, just like these Philippians, just like Paul was in prayer for these Philippians. We need to be in prayer for these brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering because of their faith in Christ. Now, we can do that in a lot of ways. You can just simply be praying. You can get involved um, through, through uh, different websites and through a company called Martyrs International that will help you learn about what other believers around the world are facing and enduring for the sake of Christ. Look, this command to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, standing and striving together in unity before enemies is still a command for you and me. And at a bare minimum, Paul is saying to us that our lives, which have received abundant grace, abundant love, abundant mercy in Christ, that we as Christians to look to live in a manner worthy of Christ or should look differently, at least look differently than our neighbors around us, than those who are outside of Christ. Now, I, I want to make clear, that the text itself isn't saying that here. They're talking very specifically about the Philippian church and what their needs are and that they were suffering. But I want us to look at this from a different angle. I want us to look at it, what does it mean for us to live a life worthy of Christ, worthy of the gospel, in a place where we don't suffer in the same way that they did? Just like the Philippians, we take pride for living in New York City, right? Most of us will even boast, this is the greatest city in the world. And it is a great city. It's a wonderful city to live. But it's easy for us to get pulled in and wrapped up in the life of the city and live, and not, and live like a citizen of New York instead of a citizen of heaven. It's easy to allow the city, its manner of life, its culture, its way of thinking to transform us into its image instead of us being transformed into the image of Christ. You know, we live in a city that is not so much hostile, but indifferent to the gospel we love. Look, church, we should be asking ourselves, at least regularly, do our lives look any different than our unbelieving neighbors? Do we exercise greater purity, holiness, joy, and charity than our non-believing friends? Or let me say it like Paul says it in Galatians. Do we exhibit greater degrees of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because the gospel of Jesus Christ has taken root in our hearts and it's transforming us? 
Does that say anything about us, who we are as living worthy of the gospel? Do our lives reflect having a relationship with Jesus Christ in this wonderful city, but knowing that we're citizens of heaven, not of the United States, not of New York City? Look, can others tell that you live differently because your faith is in Christ? Does your faith in Christ, in a sense, create a separation on one level between your neighbors, between your unbelieving neighbors, between your unbelieving friends? Or do you simply think and live like the culture around you? You know, this command to live worthy of the gospel means that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and the grace we receive through him is not just to impact our thinking. And that's where we get stuck, I think, a lot of times. We think of the gospel as only, yes, I understand the gospel. I grasp the gospel intellectually. But it's never moved beyond our heads into our hearts. It's never moved to touch our souls in the way that Christ means it to. Look, the gospel must impact more than our heads if we want to live in a manner worthy of Christ. It must penetrate to the depths of our hearts so that our lives reflect more holiness, more joy, more faithfulness, more purity. That is, that our lives reflect more and more of Christ and not our particular city, our culture, or environment. That's who we are as citizens of heaven. And that's what Paul is telling these believers in the midst of persecution, that they are citizens of heaven, they are, that their king is Jesus, and their allegiance is to him above everything else. And what is true for them is true for us as well, that our allegiance is to Christ. And we're to stand firm in the midst of a city that's indifferent to the gospel. But we're to stand firm for Christ and for his kingdom and for his word and for his truth. Paul continues this theme of unity in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He begins this section with, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation from the Spirit any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You know, it sounds like Paul is calling us to conformity here. Now, when I first became a believer back in a long time ago, 1991, I was part of, I came to faith through a college ministry, and I was part of that ministry for a number of years. And it was, a, it is, still is and was a wonderful ministry that God greatly used in my life, and I'm very, very thankful for it. But after a couple years of being involved with that ministry, I began to notice some peculiar things about that particular group of people. One is that if you were male staff and you worked on my campus or any of the surrounding campuses in central Georgia, you, they all looked alike. Now, I don't mean that they looked alike in their appearance, but they, I meant that they all dressed alike that every male staff member on any given day you would meet them, they all came wearing khakis, uh, a little polo shirt, and brown shoes of a particular brand. And not only that, but every male staff member and some of the female staff members drove Honda Civics, Honda Civics which was just weird even then. And on top of it all, they use very similar language and jargon around the gospel and Christianity. And the reason for that is they were all being trained together on how to talk about Christianity. And so they all use very similar things. You know, none of these things were bad in and of themselves. Um, but whether this group realized it or not, and most of them did not at the time, they were sending a message that unity or being of one accord looked like conformity. So it felt like if I didn't dress like them or talk like them, 
that I wasn't really part of them. But I want us to, so I want us to be careful here. That is not what Paul is calling us to. It's, when he says more love, um, more of this, more of that, he's not calling us to conformity. He's calling us to a deeper unity in Christ. Paul has moved on from addressing the need of unity against the pressures exerted on the church at Philippi from the outside to address dissension now within this body of believers. Now, how do we know this? We know this because we know that Epaphroditus came to Paul with a message from this church. Um, We know that Epaphroditus spoke to Paul, and then we also know that in chapter 4, Paul will address, as I've said before, will address this issue of, of disunity between some members of the church that probably had impacted the church in greater ways than just two people not getting along. But, it's, but also, this whole section from here to verse 18 is dealing with living in unity and harmony with one another, which at a bare minimum suggests that the, this group was struggling with getting along with each other. You know, Paul wanted to bring healing to division in this church and keep them from sort of splintering and fracturing into various uh, groups that were seeking power or authority or just sort of just splintering apart. And he was set on keeping this group united together by first referring to the affection and the love that he has for him. So when he starts out this section with make my joy complete by doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. But before he got there, he starts out with I have deep affection, I have deep sympathy for you. That Paul was showing that there's a great amount of love even before he starts addressing, he addresses, before he addresses the issue of unity, he lets them know that they're loved. Before he deals with the issue of dissension, he lets them know that, hey, I love you in the way I love you and the way you love me. I want you, you groups, you people in your church to love one another the same way. They have the same affection, the same sympathy towards each other that you have for me. And then Paul begins to address this issue of, you know, make my joy complete by doing nothing out of selfish ambition, right? Look, look, looking to, um, excuse me, sorry, to look self, to selflessly esteem others before yourself is genuine biblical love, right? Throughout the scriptures, that's the model Jesus gives to us. He's all, how are we here today? Because Jesus laid down his life for us. We weren't worthy of that. He gave himself for us. He modeled for us true love, uh, true salvation, because the perfect man, the perfect God, laid down his life for those who were unworthy. You know, so to, for us to selflessly esteem others, to consider others better than ourselves, doesn't mean that we put ourselves down or that we have to think badly of others. Instead, it just means that we need to lift others up. We need to see them for who they are and, and serve them and seek to lift them up above and beyond our own desires and our own needs. You know, we share, Paul says in Galatians, that we share in each other's burdens. And in this way, we obey the law of Christ. So here's the question. How can we have unity? How can we have unity? Paul's answer is by doing nothing out of selfish ambition by pursuing unity through humility, by laying down our personal priorities and privileges, by esteeming others better than ourselves, by looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. It sounds easy, right? No problem. We can easily do this. We can esteem others better than ourselves, right? Isn't that how everyone feels here? It's no problem. That's not true. We all know it's a problem. If it wasn't, we would never have problems with issues of churches getting along and people getting along in life. 
But the, the reality is that we do struggle with this. For most of the history of the church, we have not done well by, in considering others better than we consider ourselves. Nothing Paul says here to quell dissension is easy or even natural for us. It's all actually countercultural from the way we think and act. That doesn't mean we throw in the towel that we give up. No, we still must grow in humility. Paul's still calling us to grow in humility and unity. So here's the thing. We are called to unity, to humility, because of our union with Jesus Christ, right? That's what, Paul, that's what Jesus has done. And, and you go back to John and the Gospels, 15, 16, and 17. Jesus is praying for what? He's praying for our unity because the Father and him are one. And just like them, that we are called to be one. And we are one Theologically, we are one theoretically because we're united to Christ. Where the rubber hits the road is now taking, out, taking that fact, that theological truth, and working it out among ourselves, working it out in our families, in our homes, in our schools, in our churches. We are one in Christ, and we are to live out the truth in our churches and in our personal relationships. This doesn't happen for us by screwing up our strength, right? It happens as we rely on the Spirit of Christ for the power to live countercultural, We can't consider others better than ourselves apart from the Spirit of God at work in us. We need Christ and his strength to live in humility with one another. Maybe the best illustration of this in all of Scripture um, of humility leading to unity was demonstrated by Jesus in the washing of the disciples' feet in John 13. Here it is. Jesus esteemed others better than himself by humbly washing their feet. The king of kings took on the role of a servant to show the full extent of his love. Brothers and sisters, church, how can we refuse to imitate our king by not esteeming others better than ourselves? That's what Paul is calling us to do, to have unity. That's what we are called to do as a body, not just in our church, but in our families, in our relationships, we're called to be one, and Christ has enabled us through his spirit to work that out. Let's pray. O King of heaven, give us hearts for the spiritual unity of the church. Let's start with our own hearts first, O Lord. Start with our life, our marriage, our family, our friends. Teach us, O God, to put the needs of others before our own. Grow us in humility that we would consider others better than ourselves, and fill us with your words and spirit that our hearts would be full and desire to live at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.